0: This episode of Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Device Talks Tuesdays. Join us this Tuesday. You'll hear from our friends at Finnegan. We'll be talking about the best way to protect your AI intellectual property. Go to devicetalks.com to register. All right, you ready for this? Ready. let me welcome back to the device talks weekly podcast it's great to have you here this podcast is huge i started off with a smaller podcast i added an element to it that i thought was really cool and then i had another element i had to add and make it even bigger so it's a big podcast i hope you'll enjoy it We're really looking at at many different aspects of robotic surgery and digital surgery. We'll kick off with an interview with Anthony Fernando. He is the CEO of Ascensus, of course, formerly Transenterics. Later on, we'll hear from Todd Usen. He is the CEO of Active Surgical which is not a robotics company, but it's certainly a really cool digital surgery company. And we'll wrap it up at the end with uh, a great uh, sit-down with Maurice Ferre. He is, of course, the former CEO and founder of Mako Surgical. He's now chairman of Memic. We talked a bit about Memic, but we also talked about the deal to sell Mako to Stryker and uh, got uh, Maurice's take on the state of robotics. He uh, says what he thinks. It's really a very, very good interview. So I was grateful to have Maurice join us. In between all of that, we'll have a lot of great newmarkers newsmakers we'll have some surgical robot jeopardy for you with our contestants Chris Newmarker and Sean Hooley of mass device and uh, we'll also have some great content from our friends at Finnegan PSN labs and pack world USA very grateful there for their support of the podcast before we get into this week's episode I did want to tell you we are on clubhouse I will be holding a session on Monday at 5.30 p.m. called Device Walk and Talks. I will uh, be taking a walk. I'll have Clubhouse with me. And we'll talk about the podcast episode. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the interviews. And uh, if you have any questions, be happy to answer them. But I really would love to hear from you. Eventually, we'd like to turn this into sort of another interview opportunity. But for now, it's sort of a a, a visit with Device Talks listeners. And uh, would love to gain your insight. So 5.30 p.m. on Mondays. And then Friday at noon, you can also find us. We'll have uh, mass devices, new markers, newsmakers. Chris and I will be on there with uh, some of our friends from the medtech industry to talk about the news of the week. So if you're not on Clubhouse yet, check it out. Check out the app. If you are in Clubhouse, try to uh, try to find us. We will, again, be meeting 5.30 p.m. Eastern for device walk and talks. And then noon on Friday. We will be meeting for Mass Device's Newmarker's Newsmakers. So Monday, 5.30 p.m., Friday at noon. Now, without any further talk about clubhouses and or whatnot, it's great to bring in my podcast partners, plural, Chris Newmarker, the executive editor of Mass Device, and Sean Hooley, associate editor of the same site. How are you, gentlemen? Welcome to the podcast. Doing good.
1: Good to be here, Tom. I, I have an important question though. So, you know, as far as breakfast meats go, I mean, you more for like sausage
0: or bacon? Not a. We're not going to go the the pumpkin sausage route again, are we, Chris? I think we exhausted no, the no, topic. No, don't, no, Don't don't bring okay, that up good. anymore. No. All right, no. all right. Sorry, I, I know. Uh, I know some people are still scarred by that. I am a sausage man. Sausage. I like a good piece of bacon as much as. Well, I don't know how you, you guys are the next guys, so maybe you like them more than I do. But if I had to choose sausage to bacon, I'm definitely taking more sausage than bacon.
1: Uh, I was asking the question because obviously uh, the Alexa on our house overhears me and my wife discussing breakfast in the morning uh-huh. and uh, like what we're going to eat and my Pandora played an ad for uh, Johnsonville breakfast sausage strips.
0: What is that about?
1: That sounds like bacon. That's That sounds... <laughs> sausage stretch... I mean, stretched into bacon something that is yeah. un-
0: unholy chris Newmarket i here. know
1: right
2: i mean cats
0: and dogs sleeping together you cannot have that can't have a sausage strip that's ridiculous sean Hooley, where do you fall on this this uh important i issue? tend
2: to lean sausage i think uh especially yeah. for like a breakfast sandwich you want a little bit more mm-hmm. you know the circular patty covers the the whole yes. sandwich you want something in every bite right but uh nothing nothing against bacon i'm all for a good blt yeah and, sure. ab- and
1: absolutely you know a breakfast sandwich like a good sausage patty's good but yeah i, I was just a little bit when i heard that i was like like i don't know yeah like, i mean they're like we've solved the problem now you have it still a, still a debate it goes on
0: no one's putting sausage bits on their salads either i think that would be a little gross so everything i'm has glad its place. you didn't
1: try to throw uh, in a curveball and say ham
0: or something okay. <laughs> <laughs> i do like a good ham too I'll break this debate down even further. Let's just look at the bacon universe. (laughs) Crispy or chewy? Crispy or chewy. (laughs) The debate in my house, Sean, crispy or chewy, your bacon? Uh, Not to cop out here, but a
2: real happy medium, you know? Moderate, I see. There's there's a way
1: to to get both. I'd say just however it turns out in my oven, because I don't like to do it on the stovetop because it... Makes the whole house smell like bacon.
2: That's what you want. You want the house to smell like bacon. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's whole true. A yeah, that's true.
1: It's <laughs> a good point. It's like, oh, it's it's the morning. I got some I'm cooking some bacon.
0: <laughs> oh, all right. Now I'm hungry.
1: Take a break now for Tom Chris to get Neum- a BLT. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Chris Newmarker, let's roll him in. Let's All roll him right, in. this here week's we go. Newmarker's Newsmakers. Neumarker's
1: Newsmakers of the week. Well, number five, uh, we actually, uh, you know, this was a, a, a two for one, a BOGO deal from you, Tom. You, uh, we, had, we had two stories from you off your uh, recent uh, interview on this podcast with uh, Medtronic CEO Jeff Martha. Uh, and, uh, you know, the full stories are on. Uh, Mass Device's sister site, Medical Design Outsourcing, but we've got a uh, you know whole thing with you, you know, just you know like what you got from Martha about like how you know Medtronic is changing uh, this huge uh, you know reorganization that they're doing and uh, you know we also have a story out of the interview of like five reasons that you know Jeff Martha is uh, optimistic about the future of Medtronic and and actually the uh, five reasons he's optimistic about the future story has been just um, getting a ton of attention on, uh, on on LinkedIn in the in the past day so yeah just some some great stories here from you.
0: Well, it was a great interview I won't get into it deeply because I'm sure most of our people heard it last week but if you haven't please go check it out it's last week's uh, we had Duke and Jeff Martha on the program, which was super duper one of our, obviously one of our better performing podcasts. All right, Chris Newmarker rolling number
1: four. So number four on the list is uh, Hillrom executives are trying to to pull the plug on their, uh, you know, plan $375 million purchase of Barty uh, Diagnostics. And Barty Diagnostics, if you don't know about the company, they make the Carnation Ambulatory Monitor or uh, Cam Patch. This is one of these like really interesting technologies, you know, for, uh, you know, external EKG monitoring that you know could you know supplant these traditional holder monitors that uh, have been used you know up until till now a lot. Uh, but you know one one hitch with the technology is that there's a uh, regional uh, Medicare uh, administrator uh, you know Novitas that has uh, you know published uh, like big rate cuts for this area. And uh, Hill Rom said because of those rate cuts, they they feel that a uh, uh, that a uh, material. You know, adverse. Uh, you know, this was a material adverse effect on the deal, and uh, Bardi is actually suing Hillrom and in, uh, in Delaware to to make them move forward with the uh, merger, saying they're kind of just using this yeah. kind of reimbursement. Decision as a uh, as a pretense, and it's worth mentioning that uh, I mean, you know, just this week as well. I mean, Boston Scientific closed on its acquisition of Preventive Solutions, you know, similar type of technology for remote monitoring of you know for for car- cardiac arrhythmias, and you know, Philips last month completed its purchase of Biotelemetry. So, other other big companies have proceeded with deals like acquiring in this space, but uh, you know, Hill Hill-Rum's trying to get out of one of these deals.
0: Uh, you don't see that happen very often with the deal going that way. So, uh, see how that plays out. Now it's time for our first keynote conversation. We're going to hear from Anthony Fernando, the CEO of Ascensus.
3: But first, a message from Brandon Hoser of Packworld USA. Packworld USA is a leading manufacturer of precision controlled validatable heat sealing equipment. Our Toss heat sealing technology is an advanced form of impulse heat sealing which pairs well with medical device, pharmaceutical, and biotech applications. With over 25 years of manufacturing equipment for the life science industries, Packworld has supplied equipment for typical applications such as sealing pouches made from poly, foil, or Tyvek materials. Our machines are also capable of heat-sealing fluoropolymer materials requiring higher temperatures approaching or north of 300 degrees Celsius like PTFE, PFA, and FEP. Beyond sterile barrier packaging, Packworld equipment is used in the creation of personal protective equipment, implanted medical devices, and more. Packworld is located in the mid-Atlantic region of the United States, calling Nazareth, Pennsylvania its home. Although considered a small business, our machines have been installed in clean rooms around the world, including Europe, Americas, Middle East, Africa, and Asia-Pacific regions. We pride ourselves with great customer service. A real-life person answers incoming calls, so automated directories can be avoided. We welcome a conversation about heat sealing projects. Please reach out when the need arises.
0: Next week we'll hear more about the technology behind Packworld's medical heat sealing equipment. For more information, go to packworldusa.com. Oh, Anthony Fernando, welcome to the podcast.
4: Thank you, Tom. Glad, glad to be here.
0: Before we get into into the business, uh, I always love to know how folks found their way to to where they are. I know you're Really, an engineer by training. I don't know if you always had intention on, on finding your way to med tech, or if you were more found your way through the, the 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 tech side of med tech, maybe less the med and more the tech.
4: Yeah, Tom. So I actually, it was really tech. I you know, right after graduate school, I actually got into robotics. I was doing robotics for nuclear waste handling, working for the U.S. government, and then that kind of led me down a path to go into use of robotics in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, you know, doing uh, pharmaceutical quality control and R&D related work. And then that kind of caught my interest in, you know, maybe adjacent field, which was med tech and kind of trying to get closer to uh, surgeons and hospitals and patients. And kind of then made my way into med tech probably on uh, 15 years ago and then been. Enjoying every minute of
0: it. You had found your way into MedTech. I know you had worked. Uh, you, you joined Striker, oh. I believe, in 2013, which is roughly when they bought Mako. Was there a connection between the acquisition and your joining, or were you? How, how was there? Are were you involved yeah. in that transaction at all somehow?
4: Yeah, I, I was involved in in that. Uh, Post transaction, okay. uh, because I was really focused more on the international innovation and emerging market uh, technology portfolio based out of uh, Singapore. Mm-hmm. So I had a, you know, Striker has a very large R&D presence uh, in Asia. So once the robotics acquisition took place with with Mako, uh, my team uh, ended up, you know, providing support to the global organization, you know, with software-related uh, work. So I'm very, very familiar with that, uh, but that was mostly post, uh, post-transaction post support.
0: So is that how you came to become involved with uh, surgical robotics?
4: Uh, yeah, that, I, I would say that was the first, from a surgery point of view, that was the first exposure to mm-hmm. the surgical robotics, but the whole concept of uh, robotics and uh, in automated systems and software, hardware. That's been in the works for many, uh, many years. But that was the first exposure. And then uh, then came uh, Transenterics.
0: How did you come to join Transenterics?
4: So I joined Transenterics at the time we were doing the acquisition of uh, the Italian company so far, mm-hmm. where, Sen- where Senhance came in in 2015. So I, kinda, I joined at the time and did the acquisition uh, integrated the companies and then ha- i've been kind of the person who has owned that technology from the very first day since we uh, acquired it uh, and then we went through all the fta processes and you know scaling up manufacturing and and then uh, moved on in 2018 we acquired mst technologies that's mm-hmm. another acquisition that uh, i led uh, for the company and that's when the digital journey began Uh, So now we are on the digital journey and we kind of want to put it all together and take it up to the next level to provide a really elegant, uh, you know, performance solution, uh, leveraging robotics, leveraging digital technology, uh, you know, to help uh, improve uh, surgeons, uh, elevating surgeons' uh, performance and, and, you know, as a result, getting uh, better outcomes.
0: So you were you were COO in uh, J- in June of two thousand seventeen. You became CEO in November two thousand and nineteen. Talk to me about what the state of the company was uh, in in the surgical system was when you took over. How would you how would you describe the company's uh, status at that time?
4: Yeah, so I would say at, at the time you know we had very good technology, and I had obviously really good uh, knowledge and background of it because doing the integration and also we had we didn't quite have a digital strategy per se uh, and then also it was uh, pretty clear that we needed to focus on uh, market development uh, to gain more experience and and generate data and convince uh, our future customers so that was kind of the state mm-hmm. of the company we we had a good product but the world didn't know what we had mm-hmm. And, you know, we were being second guessed by, you know, we present cost data and, and we would get pushback saying, is that true? And, and, you know, can you show evidence? So we didn't quite have proper uh, clinical evidence and peer reviewed journals and publications. So that's the reason that's kind of why those were pretty, that was the state when I took over the company. And, and that's kind of what we've been focusing on since.
0: So stocks aren't the stock price isn't necessarily the best measure of what's going on in, in a company, but it's one that that is on the forefront, it's one that we see. And in 2018, Transenteric stock was trading for over 80. It, it took a precipitous decline uh, in 2019. Now you're in the single digits. You're inching your way back up. What was the cause of that of that start, that, that steep decline? Uh, what what was there a single event? Was there something that occurred to uh, to to uh, to cause that?
4: I think I wouldn't say it was a single event. It was a you know multiple events that kind of came came together. You know, in twenty eighteen we did almost twenty four million in revenue, uh, and in in uh, twenty seventeen we did about six or six or seven. Million. So it was pre- pretty significant growth in terms of revenue. So I think there was an expectation in nineteen that we would continue to grow at that click uh, in in terms of revenue. And that we were not able to realize. Uh, so that was what, and, and so that was one element mm-hmm. uh, that played played into the stock. And second was cash. Uh, our cash runway was shortening because uh, we were really focused on trying to commercialize the product in all geographies. Uh, so we kind of burned through cash uh, as well at the time. So the balance sheet being relatively weak and not being able to post revenue to hit uh, the street's expectations. I mean, those two combined, it really led to the decline, uh, decline in the stock price and, and the valuation.
0: What's it like taking over a company where you're 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 already there? You're you're at the company you're in a senior position, uh you're taking over a company that that needs a, a, a some redirection. Uh is it uh is it easier than coming into a fresh situation where you were not part of the story previously? Or is it more challenging because you you know, you know the people, you know sort of the systems you you were part of? some of the decisions that went on before. Yeah. Curious as to what it's like to to take over a company in that state.
4: I wouldn't say it was easy because you know the entire uh, external whether it's outward you know investor uh, related uh, matters that was not something that I had focused on prior to taking on the role. Uh, The prior CEO and CFO primarily managed that. But the positive thing was really the team and the technology. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I was very familiar with the technology, knew it very intimately. And also the team, you know, majority of the team, you know, especially the the team uh, outside the U.S., I was primarily responsible for building that entire organization. So very, very familiar, you know, really good familiarity with the team. So knowing the team and the technology that gave me some, you know, very high level of confidence about what we have and what we can actually accomplish. So that was done. And then, you know, we had a very very supportive board who agreed with the, you know, change of strategy to focus on market development and, and really uh, do that first as a first step before we think about full fledged uh, commercial efforts so the board was aligned so given those two and i, I kind of felt uh, you know pretty comfortable taking on
0: uh, the, the role at that time. Uh, I mean, Transantarx has gone through, uh, I think probably when you came on board or just prior, it had already sort of pivoted in one direction with the acquisition of the, I believe it was with the at- acquisition of the Italian company. So we've got uh, a good history of being able to sort of move to where the the, the the puck will be. So where are you now? What is different from what you're offering now uh, than then what was being offered when you took over?
4: So, Tom, I'm kind of going to take a step back uh, to, to kind of come to your question. Sure. You know, when you think about uh, Senhance, I mean, we've had this platform uh, which we are calling a, a digital laparoscopy platform because our solution primarily focuses on providing technology to the laparoscopic surgeon in a very cost effective manner. Uh, okay. So, that we have established, and, and we have a very good track record of being uh, able to deliver safe, effective, cost effective uh, surgery. And then, when we started introducing all the digital elements to it, you know, augmented intelligence and, and machine learning, which we got uh, FDA approval in 2020, and earlier this year, we got the CE mark for that technology as well, there was not a whole lot of recognition for who we were, because we were just simply getting compared to another robotics play and another robotics company. But we actually, we were building uh, technologies and solutions really for the future, well, way beyond robotics. So we recognized early on saying, hey, robotics is just one element of the solution. And there are multiple other elements that need to come to play. So that was the reason why we wanted to make sure that we uh, rebrand and create this new category called digital, uh, you know, building on digital laparoscopy Mm -hmm. and really talking about performance guided surgery is to try to enable us to communicate better and be able to make the case for why we are different Mm -hmm. in terms of what we offer. Yes, we offer robotic technology that's at the core, but the, What's really going to help surgeons and, and uh, you know, improve outcomes is the digital element. That's what we see as the future. So we are, building at, at the, we are building the future now without getting any recognition. So that was the reason why we thought this was the time to do it. We continue to perform digital laparoscopy, but at the same time, we are very aggressively building our digital portfolio. Uh, in terms of augmented intelligence, machine learning, mm-hmm. you know, trying to perform, uh, you know, the, the goal, you know, we want to be able to learn good surgery and best practices from everywhere and be able to use it anywhere. So that, you know, uh, we can be predictive in terms of how, uh, what good looks like in terms of an outcome and reduce variability. And if you reduce variability, you can contain cost uh, further in in surgery so that that's really the the change it's not uh, going after a totally new product it's basically trying to get recognition for what we do and also be even more aggressive on the digital side of the uh, technology front uh, and and be able to offer solutions there
0: so so what are the components of your your digital elements? Because we, we, we hear the term digital, digital surgery now. Uh, it seems like as if there's a move industry-wide to kind of move off robotics and really, as you said, sort of explain that robotics is a part of it, but it's not the whole thing. What does your digital platform consist of? What, what tech and services does your digital platform offer?
4: So there are three elements, Tom. Um, there's a pre-op element that we are calling intelligent preparation, and then the intra-op segment that we are calling perceptive real-time guidance Mm -hmm. and a post-operative segment that we are calling performance analytics. So currently, as we stand today, we are initially focusing on the intra-op element. We have this uh, system that we launched called the Intelligent Surgical Unit or the ISU that can interpret the surgical image real-time. So it can identify instruments uh, and it can it knows where the surgeon is going with the instrument, so it's starting to collect data now, uh, and it knows what the surgeon is looking at and what the surgeon is doing. So we are starting with the intraop piece, which we already have it in the market now, uh, and now we are building building kind of the database uh, over time, uh, in order to be able to add further uh, augmented intelligence capabilities. And then in parallel, we also uh, working on uh, some solutions for the pre-operative or intelligent preparation side of things so that knowing the patient's anatomy and the procedure that you're planning to do, what is the best way to perform the surgery? How do we position the uh, equipment to get the best outcome knowing the surgeon, surgeon's techniques, etc., so we can be better prepared? So that's where we are uh, currently. And as we build this a database of uh, surgical data, surgical analytics. Now we will be able to do, go and do the uh, performance analytics uh, post-op, mm-hmm. and and say this is how the surgery was performed. This is what the time looks like. Uh, this was how many moves the pa- uh, the the surgeon had to make in order to do this, uh, and also be able to say you know what does good look like, and be mm-hmm. able to compare and then improve. Uh, from there. So we've kind of already in, in doing some of this work, and we're just continuing to build upon what we are doing uh, to take it really to the next level.
0: Who is the customer for that that post-operative surgery sort of analysis of a surgery? Is it is it the surgeon that wants to get better? Is it the hospital that's looking for billing? Is it uh, some other administrator? who Who is finding that element, or you do you anticipate we'll find that element most compelling?
4: So there's two, two cohorts. One is definitely the surgeon, mm-hmm. because the surgeon obviously wants to do better and, and improve and try to be consistent as well, right? If you mm-hmm. can de- deliver consistent. So surgeon's definitely the primary target. And the second is probably, you know, the hospital administration, whether it's the, you know, OR manager uh, trying to better schedule, uh, patients and, and know from history where they stand or from a hospital administrator because when a complication happens that significantly impacts the p and L of a hospital uh, so how do you eliminate a complication and the only way to eliminate a complication is by being able to predictively deliver uh, an outcome and that's kind of what these analytics will perform uh, will demonstrate what are you know trying to help figure out what are the cause and effect of uh, certain uh, complications and then be able to say, how do you prevent those complications? Uh, is it a skill? Is it just a simple unknown of the the patient? Or is it simply the patient had other uh, chronic uh, ailments that, that kind of contributed to that uh, poor outcome? So we'll be able to kind of, you know, the administration will also will be able to clearly Dissect the data to better understand where they need to improve uh, and and get better as an organization. I've talked
0: with with a number of of companies uh, selling digital surgery systems or digital robotics or, or surgical robotic systems. Uh, and the, one of the challenges, of course, especially in this time of COVID, and I'd like to learn more broadly how COVID has impacted what what you're doing. Uh, how have you been able to? Have you had any trouble? placing systems because hospitals uh, seem to to, to uh, are having a, a tougher time with elective surgery, of course, under budget constraints. Have you had to to, to alter the way you're, you're selling these and, and, and putting these in, into hospitals or, or financing? What has your response been to, to sort of the new challenges presented by COVID?
4: So, Tom, you know, before COVID hit as part of our, uh, you know, market development strategy in the fourth quarter, we moved to operating lease model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and this was basically we placed the system and and we agreed to a, a, a monthly fee that includes a certain number of procedures. And so we already moved to that uh, operate business model uh, in in the fourth quarter of nineteen. So as a result, we didn't run into any capital issues du- this during uh, twenty twenty, and we ended up placing ten systems uh, despite COVID. Uh, you know, we placed three in Japan, three in the U.S., and uh, four in Europe under this uh, operating leasing program. So we were uh, kind of slightly ahead of uh, the, the COVID uh, challenges when it mm-hmm. came to placing systems. So we didn't uh, go into that, uh, you know, we didn't hit that challenge. Uh, however, we learned a lot. I think we we now know that using that model, that model was very appealing to the hospitals that we worked with uh so that's that's something that we will continue to think about saying how do we you know continue to expand and grow that kind of a uh, business model you know moving forward it is an option
0: and we had uh, Joe Mullings on the show a couple of uh, month ago or so and he had mentioned that uh you had done an installation i think in japan completely remotely uh is that something you can talk about yeah
4: sure so i think that was you know really to, to your your previous question as well you know what was what was kind of the challenges getting uh, you know, other than placing the system, getting the surgeon uh, surgeons trained was that's kind of what got in the way for us. Uh, Is because we couldn't travel, we couldn't send our trainers, and we only had training facility in in the U.S. and in Italy. Uh, so in Japan, we had interest. So that's kind of why we we opened up a training center. Uh, uh-huh. You know, for, fortunately, we had two very well-trained surgeons in Japan already because we had a system there. So we had to we establish a training center. Then we worked with those surgeons, and our trainers worked remotely. You know, working with those surgeons and the new hospitals, and we got additional surgeons trained to get the new sites up and running. So we were supporting uh, the surgeons on the ground and the new surgeons we were bringing on board. So. Uh, that's kind of how we evolved into creating this uh, remote uh, remote solution in order for us to be able to see what's happening in the OR and and we can uh, help uh, get them up to speed uh, as quickly as possible so that's something positive that came out of this uh, pandemic is we kind of moved to how we enable uh, you know surgical training surgical case observations you know additional mentoring etc uh, through this remote uh, uh, device that we uh, worked on and and brought to life
0: I watched a, a recent presentation of yours which uh, seems to speak to your 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 interest in the in the laparoscopic market It's a larger market I think for for procedures uh, but your future. A future is it laparoscopic only, or, or, or you also see opportunities in, in open surgery as well? Tell me the your 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 strategy there, and and what does the the next couple of years look like for you in that regard? So
4: we are open to both sides of it, but I think laparoscopy, given the uh, the, the underpenetrated nature of laparoscopy, that will continue to be one of our primary focus areas. But at the same time, uh, all the solutions that we are continuing to evolve and create. We are going to leave that door open as well because uh, that's something that we can also cater to. Today, our approach is primarily laparoscopic technique. However, the cost per procedure, we are equivalent to laparoscopy today. or very close to it. So we are already at the low per procedure cost. So starting from there and being able to do, perform minimally invasive surgery, at a very low uh, cost point, and be able to change a technique. Uh, so that's that's something we will will leave that door open and, and continue to push that way. Uh, but the technology that we ha- have today only caters to laparoscopy. But we are not close to the idea of going uh, working on uh, open surgery.
0: Well, I think Fernando, I appreciate your uh, your joining us in the podcast today.
4: Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here, and thanks for your time.
0: All right, Chris Newmarker, let's roll on with the Newmarker's newsmakers. What is number three?
1: You know, number three originally uh, ran on another of our sister sites, uh, Drug Discovery and Development. And this is from our pharma editor, Brian Bunce. And it's it's kind of like talking about how there have been, you know, a few Bell's palsy cases in the um, phase three trials for uh, COVID-19 uh, vaccines. Um, you know, they were Two uh, recipients in the J and J phase three trial that developed uh, Bell's palsy. You know, two two people in the placebo group did as well. And with the Moderna trial, there were three recipients that developed it, um, and just one in the placebo group. And that called, caused uh, you know uh, FDA and CDC to say they're going to be monitoring the uh, the Pfizer and, and the Moderna trials going forward for you know, for, for more Bell's palsy. So, and, you know, it's worth mentioning too. I mean, there are tens of thousands of volunteers in these trials, but it's just, you know, kind of, you know, mentioning just like one, one thing that they're going to be watching for, uh, you know, going forward with the vaccines. Um, I mean, we're, you know, ever, there's just you know, so much hope around the vaccines Um you know the, uh, sure. the regulatory authorities say these are, are really good, effective vaccines, but you know they're also experimental. So we're just going to be monitoring them to you know make sure we don't have uh, any any problems
0: cropping up. Great point. And in other vaccine news, I kindly asked if Sean's parents have been vaccinated yet, and I learned that they're roughly my age. So <laughs> great. Sorry, it's not my <laughs> it's, it's not, not fault? my fault. But sorry. Anyway, and I have not been vaccinated yet. This means you have experience wait. and so, wisdom, Tom. That's right. And I'm sharing it all with our listeners. (laughs) This is the culmination of decades (laughs) of experience. Yikes. Uh, Well, interesting news about the vaccine. What is our number two item on the new markers, newsmakers list, Chris?
1: Number two on the list, we've got Boston Scientific is going to acquire the uh, Luminous uh, surgical business for uh, nearly 1.1 billion billion dollars that's a billion with a b and uh they'll be uh, buying this from uh affiliate of uh, bearing private equity uh asia just just another like major you know medtech m M&E, and and a deal going down um you know, uh, Luminous, which is based in Israel, has a, you know, surgical portfolio that includes laser systems, fibers, and accessories for uh, urology. Uh, you know, they, they've got their, uh, you know, proprietary Moses technology for managing patients with kidney stones. Um, you know, we, we've been talking about this for the last, last month or so that, you know, coming out of this uh, pandemic that, you know, we'd be uh, seeing a real spate of M&As. And uh, that, that's exactly what's happening.
0: That's right. Nostradamus, baby. You predicted it. Woo. You said it in December. Hashtag trademark copyright Nostradamus. Nostradamus. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris Newmarker, let's bring in number one and I and I think we'll send it sense a trend in who's writing top stories here at, at Mass Device. Yeah, that's right. Number one, another story from Sean. It's uh we've got uh you know
1: FDA uh you know uh, you know approving uh you know, what they're saying is the first robot-assisted system for uh, transvaginal hysterectomy. uh, uh, Mimic, uh Innovative Surgery's a uh, hominis uh, system, and uh, you know the uh, this this transvaginal approach uh, requires you know fewer incisions uh, on the abdomen compared to you know the uh, the traditional uh, laparoscopic uh, hysterectomy. Uh, but I mean, I mean, Sean, you're kind of mentioning everything we. You know, uh, you know, we, we post on mass device that says ro- robot assistant. It you know, right now it seems to be doing really well.
2: Definitely, yeah. And this, I mean, this says you know, robot assisted. There's video cameras involved. It, it obviously it uh, creates a different pathway to performing the surgery uh, with less uh, abdominal incisions, which I believe is kind of a big deal in that procedure. Um, and then you get, you know, they said that all 30 procedures that have been performed were successfully completed with no conversions to the other approach, which requires more incisions on the abdomen. So altogether, it seems like it's, um, like it's a step forward in the in the procedure and in the space. And like you said, anytime robots attached, you know, people want to read about it.
0: Now it's time for our second keynote conversation. We're going to talk to Todd Usen. He's the CEO of Active Surgical, a very cool company. But first, I want to reintroduce you to Matthew Heidecker. He's a vice president at PSN Labs. We're going to talk about PSN's various offerings. So Matthew, I understand PSN Labs does more than just labs. Labs isn't the name, but what else do you do?
5: We do. We are a diverse business which maintains three unique business sectors. We have an engineering services team, which covers nearly every aspect of medical device design and development, including structural analysis and analysis for design for manufacturability. We have a processing lab, which includes a white room, clean room for device molding or component molding or assembly. And we have a test lab that's ISO IEC 17025 2017 certified, which allows us to test medical devices for critical components to regulatory submissions. With those structures being under one roof, it provides us with a competitive advantage for our customers because normally they're having to contract with several different companies, which increases the amount of time it takes to start a regulatory submission. By having all of these businesses under one roof, it allows us to be a more effective resource for them as they develop new and novel devices for the industry.
0: Ventilators, of course, have been an important issue. What kind of work do you do there?
5: We are one of six companies, I believe, in the United States that is certified to test uh, ventilators and breathing products according to ISO 18562, which looks at the, the biocompatibility evaluation of breathing gas pathways in healthcare applications. Uh, with our engineering um, background, we have developed uh, a unique test setup to PSN, which has been referred to by some of our customers as a best-in-class approach to this standard, where we've developed clinically relevant test setup through isolation of variables. A good example of this is volatile organic compound testing. VOCs are present in the atmosphere. Uh, They're present in every building. And isolating them when you have to to measure down to the part per billion level and uh, report that is difficult. So by engineering a unique solution... Through the integration of our engineering services group and our testing lab, we've developed a best-in-class approach to testing these devices to ensure that when our customers are working to submit for regulatory approval, we've done our due diligence to ensure that they're safe for patient use. Um, And that's coupling with our in-house toxicology capabilities and biocompatibility capabilities, along with uh, the testing and also the engineering of the devices.
0: Tune in next week. We'll have another episode of the Two Minute Detox with PSN Labs. For more information, go to psnlabs.com. Well, Todd Youson, welcome to the podcast.
6: Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Tom.
0: I am, uh, I'm eager to learn about Active Surgical. It's, uh, I think its name actually is very, uh, very descriptive of what it does. I'm quite impressed with the tech, so can't wait to learn more. But I wanted to find out a bit about your path. Uh, I often ask folks how they found their way into the med tech industry. What was your, uh, what was your entry point?
6: Well, I've been in med tech for a long time. Um, and my entry point into med tech was right out of college. Actually, I had the opportunity to, uh, interview. I was a business uh, major in college and I interviewed with, uh, what was then known as Kendall healthcare and Kendall, which is now Medtronic, you know, it became Tyco and Covidian. And I was part of a college recruiting program That's right, and, um, I was blessed to get the opportunity and I've never, I've never looked back and, um, I've, uh, I've spent my life in 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 large companies, so I'm not your traditional startup CEO. And uh, uh, you know, I'm not you know the, these brilliant young engineer founders. I'm not either <laughs> young, brilliant, or an engineer. So uh, <laughs> neither am I. We'll get yeah, along great. <laughs> it's, been quite a, it's been quite a run, and I uh, really enjoyed it.
0: Well, let's talk about that. I mean, yeah, you were previously at Olympus. Before that, you were at Smith and Nephew. Before that, you were at Boston Scientific. So you're you're a big company guy. What was it? that uh caused you to see an opportunity what why did you become a a startup ceo
6: well you know it's it's interesting when i uh wasn't looking to become a startup ceo necessarily it's uh the technology drew me in. I I, I loved my time at, at uh, Boston Scientific and and Smith and Nephew and Olympus and you know I was I was groomed to to do these opportunities and I, I enjoyed being a president of I had these great big P and Ls and I realize now I'm coming over and I just have an L uh, <laughs> you know, but, you know and, and that's and that's okay it just uh it was the right time you know technology you know I, I I did a lot of of things and I learned a great deal at these companies and. The opportunity to to see something like Active and the technology that Dr. Peter Kim uh, developed and the team here was um, something I said. You know what? We we can make this special, and I'd love to be part of it.
0: Just one one final question about yourself, and then I do want to learn about the technology. But but how hard a decision was it to make that move into to, to start up? What were the pros? What were the cons? How long were each was each list? And, uh, what was, uh, what kind of put you over the top finally, other than, t- other than the
6: technology, was there something else? Yeah. You know, it, it, I think it, it, sometimes it's just the right time. I yeah. mean, uh, the stars aligned. Um, I wasn't looking to make a move to a startup. I wasn't looking to make a move to a large company. It was just, you know, an opportunity comes to you and you, and you listen and, um, it was almost I, I had the chance. I, I did the others, you know, um, mm-hmm. I, I was, I was really blessed and honored to be the president of Smith and nephew and all of orthopedics. I really learned a lot and cut my teeth getting a full opportunity to be president and then to go to another great company like Olympus. And, you know, we had six medical companies there and we took it to 11 different divisions through collaborations, some adjacencies and, and a couple of acquisitions. And that experience was amazing. And to have a real global opportunity, um, But then to this technology is what drew me in and the people were special. And uh, again, like I said, I wasn't looking to go back and be the guy that goes and creates his own slides and and, and all the work. And uh, you know what? My wife originally said, is this a box you're checking? And I said, no, it's not a box I'm checking. I, I really believe in what this company stands for. And I don't even think the company knows what they stand for yet in a good way, because this technology can be even more special than I think they think.
0: It's uh, it's really incredible. But I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I, I love these conversations because I just want to know in running startups, in running a startup, being making decision as CEO, are you drawing from everything you've learned as a, a big company executive, or are you finding yourself tapping into parts of your brain that you didn't even know you had?
6: I, I think a little bit of both. And, yeah. um, you know, it's easy to say what you think you do well. I have plenty of flaws, and I know that. But one of the things that I've over the years, I, I've never let title get to me. I've always been, I believe, and at least it's been one of those things on your performance reviews all <laughs> those years. And even when your performance review was done by CEOs was, um, you know, title never affected me. So I, I was, I loved working with everybody. I love having an open door and I I, I don't believe uh, title doesn't deserve respect. People deserve respect anyway. So I, I like being part of the team. Use my title when you, when you need it. So this was a, an easy adjustment as part mm-hmm. of just being part of the team and sitting down with these young, brilliant engineers um, and, and, and working alongside. But absolutely, I, I don't necessarily know if it's a new part of my brain, but it's a part of my brain that I had to dust off. I'll tell you that because you do get spoiled in a large company um, mm-hmm. and not always for the better. But if I needed a presentation, I'd have 15 people presenting me with something within an hour. Now it's OK. Let's You need a presentation. Roll up your sleeves and let's go figure it out. With <laughs> a super- people and let's go do it. So um, I think it's just remembering what you hopefully didn't forget and bringing that back. And that's been really exciting.
0: That's great. Well, let's talk about, about Active Surgical. Uh, it's a really an interesting company. Uh, I, could, I could ask many questions, but why don't you, why don't you get us started? What, what is Active Surgical? What is your, your, your elevator pitch to folks?
6: My elevator pitch is we're the computer vision engine in the operating room, applicable to over 55 million procedures today and we envision a future of collaborative surgery. Our foundational technology, Dr. Peter Kim at Children's National Medical Center, uh, completed the world's first fully autonomous robotic surgery of soft tissue. That's great. We're not building a robot though, and we're programming off the shelf robots, and that's what Dr. Kim did. But with what we can do today is with surgical intelligence, we can power both scopes and robots to see what humans cannot see. And we're basically bringing to life in the operating room things that a surgeon can't see today. And, mm-hmm. and Tom, the reason it means something is that one of the things, I learned a few things early when you said you come to a startup, is there a real problem where you have some superstar technology? Make sure there's a real problem out there that you're helping. The third leading cause of death in the world is preventable medical errors, of which 26% of those are preventable surgical errors. Wow. And these are patients that didn't go to the operating room because of a terminal disease. They shouldn't have died. They, they shouldn't have had that problem. It's, it's situational awareness, things a physician couldn't see, key blood flow, key critical structures, artery versus vein, tumor, tissue, what have you. And we're bringing that to life both through science and our proprietary sensing capabilities and what we call intelligent light, as well as through insights through a a proprietary algorithm that we have on annotating video, and we can provide real-time AI in the operating room.
0: So uh, that clarifies one thing. So you are not developing a robotic system. You're not a surgical robotic company in any way.
6: Yes. And and when I I first got here, the the thought was, well, you should see what we can do with robots. We've completed an autonomous robot. And I'm like, that's great. We go raise a billion dollars and we can go build a, you know, maybe we build a robot. And the thought was, Could we do that? We have a tremendous amount of robotic talent in Mm the organization, Tom. But, you know, being in capital side of the business, as well as disposables over the years, robotics is going to consolidate like everything else. At the end of the day, there's one giant player right now, and there's a bunch of really talented companies that are going to fall into the mix. And it's going to end up being three or four companies, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And the only reason I say that, and it's not like I have some crystal ball, when I look at surgical endoscopy, it's, it's Stryker, Karl Storz, and Olympus. When I look at GI, it's Olympus, Pentax, and Fuji. When you look at orthopedics it's Smith & Nephew, Stryker, and Arthrex. It's the same few companies, only a few, and each one that really has the capital equipment and the scopes. So the thought is, if we're going to go build a robot and we do a great job with it, even if it does completely autonomous surgeries – and I go out in five years and have 5% or 7% of the market and we're all high-fiving each other and chest bumping and really excited, that's 5 or 7% of a market. Whereas if we have a technology that can fit with every single robot, every single scope, and they're all just carriers, and we want to enable each one of them to take advantage of their natural abilities and do more we have a chance at hundred percent of the procedures to have active being part of every procedure, and to me, that was a better business model. And based on the science and the technology that we have, um, I believe we can influence more patients and lead to better patient outcomes.
0: No, that's a great point, and and hadn't really. I've wondered about how this will all play out with the consolidation. And this is not if you have a surgical robot of your own. If you have a Johnson and Johnson, Medtronic, whoever big company has their robot, they can't really go buying. A, they can't go on buying another surgical robot, because the technology I wouldn't think would be compatible. It's not, it's not a typical kind of medical device sort of acquisition. So uh, that, makes a, that makes a great deal of sense. So what is it then that you're making? Is it kind of an operating system for
6: robotic surgery? It's not just robotic surgery. It's basically what we have is, uh, we start with science and it's multimodal technology that we can identify uh, blood flow Uh, To begin with, in a traditional path uh, through uh, multimodal light, and intelligent light, it's wavelengths of light that are absorbed into the tissue reflected back. At the end of the day, we can see things that today they have to inject dyes. Uh, to visualize. So we can work with every single doctor on uh, whether it's colorectal, bariatric, uh, lap coles, procedures that you either need to visualize blood flow or perfusion data and tissue characterization, or you need to identify key critical structures. So we can do that first order of measure with no AI or anything like that. We have a small adapter that fits right onto existing scopes, right between the scope and the camera. And with the press of a button, you can now see things such as uh, blood flow or perfusion data or critical structures that in the past or currently you if you use a traditional scope and you have a a system that you want to visualize perfusion data or critical structures, you inject dye, you bring in a big system and there's wonderful camera systems out there, another piece of capital to visualize that dye, which tells a doctor, here's some blood flow. But that's not real time and that's not um, a seamless workflow. By the press of a button through heat map technology, we're just showing a physician, here's blood flow, here's not blood flow. Perfect example, Tom, if, I, if you came into our, our, our office and I brought you into the lab, I'd take your finger and I'd stick it right under our, our device that's hooked onto an existing scope, whether it's a striker, whether it's a stortz, uh, the, the world leaders in laparoscopic technology, and I'd stick it right under their, their scope and we would show you a heat map that shows you your whole finger where the blood is flowing. I'd stick a rubber band around the end of your finger and immediately, this heat map would show that you have no blood flow at the tip of your finger. Wow! I take the rubber band off, and immediately it would fill up again. There's no system in medical intraoperatively that can do that. Now that's that's step one. So now the fun starts, and now we get into what we're called our active insights. And with our insights, as soon as that procedure is over, all of the data, the surgical data, the HIPAA compliant, is collected. It's, it's sent to the cloud. It's stored in the cloud. And it's, it's basically, we have, uh, we're building the world's first networked surgical platform. And basically, we're continuously updating the cloud. And as we expand, we call it the active edge platform, and it becomes more intelligent. We have, um, uh, we're basically inferencing on the edge. We're going to get data from doctors all over the world that can be delivered to any specific surgeon in any surgery anywhere when they're using this little active site image module. And what that means is we'll be transforming massive amounts of data. It's gathered intraoperatively and it helps characterize tissue and key critical structures. So best way to say it, and I, if, for those that aren't medical, and you're, we are medical, but it, the easiest way I look at it is, think of uh, when Garmin or GPS first came out mm-hmm. and they would tell you that, hey, Tom, you're uh, from where you are now, you're 40 miles from Logan Airport. Okay, great. That's the shortest distance from where you live to Logan. Um, Waze came out and says, you know what? I'm not going to take you 40 miles to Logan. I'm actually going to take you 50 miles to Logan, but I'm going to save you 45 minutes because what you can't see and what I can see through my crowdsourced information is there's an accident the way we're going the shortest distance, there's Mm -hmm. construction, there's road problems, what have you. What we're doing at Active is Besides helping the physicians in that first order of measure in those procedures with blood flow, mm-hmm. we help them right away. They can see things they can't see. The data collection, we are going to be that ways. We are going to show them things, key critical structures. There's an organ right there. There's the cystic artery, the cystic duct. This is a vein versus artery. Here's the nerve, things that you can't identify. But through AI and through crowdsourced data sets with experts all over the the world, we're able to feed that information in real time on the operating room screen, not all the data that's being collected pre-op, but on the operating room right there on the screen on the monitor that the surgeon is looking at. So whether you're wow. in, you know, whatever country you're in, if you do a ton of procedures in the middle of Boston and you do 500 of a certain type of procedure a year, or you're in the middle of the suburbs or another country and you do five procedures a year, every patient should have the confidence that their surgeon has the same exact information to make key critical decisions. And that's what we're to do.
0: So first question, how, Let me, me, I'll ask my second question first. How, if I'm a surgical patient in Boston and and, and I undergo an appendectomy and this is used on me and you've collected all the data, assuming that's an applicable procedure, how does my, why is my, how is my appendectomy relevant to someone else's? What is, what is, what is consolidating all that data? How does that inform the surgeon for the, the next procedure they do.
6: Well, the nice thing about whatever the procedure is, an appendectomy, a colorectal procedure, let's say a lap coli, again, just removing a gallbladder. Yep. Um, every After every procedure, we have a proprietary um, annotation model. And we can truly label um, a one-hour surgical video, step-by-step, ground truth data. That's a surgeon. So basically, Tom, every case, you if you can have a surgeon that can identify and label Right there in that spot, based on what I see right there, that's a cystic artery. That's a cystic duct. That is, uh, they're, they're, they're identifying key landmarks and landmines. And then if you have what's called true ground truth data and you know that they're experts and that really, that really is a nerve, Okay. Then, then we start training the model and the model is being trained. Each time a doctor is, is labeling through our annotation and a proprietary annotation, we're labeling, and that's a nerve, that's a nerve, that's a nerve. Now we've done hundreds of procedures that we've labeled and through our crowdsourced data, we know what the nerve is. We know exactly where the nerve is. We know where the critical view of safety is. And so it's basically through, um, our proprietary data set, it's, it's, anat- it's of anatomical data mm-hmm. correlated through surgical video. It allows us to develop the artificial intelligence uh, capabilities to then bring this back to, to live surgery. And, and here's the example um, because we're hardware agnostic, and um, when I sit down and, and look at the fact that we can fit on any single scope or any single robot, that allows that reduces what's called data bias. And one of the when when you're using just when one company is collecting data using their system,
4: there's a natural mm-hmm.
6: bias. It's a leading cause of reduced accuracy. But because we're working with every system, and then we have this proprietary annotation model, and I'm going to try to do this simple. And I, if it makes sense to me, who's not a scientist, hopefully it makes sense to anybody. Because uh, um, a one-hour surgical video has two hundred and sixteen thousand frames. And the reason I know that is the math that I've learned is there's 60 frames per second, 60 seconds, a minute, 60 minutes, an hour. There is no doctor in the world that labels frame by frame of a one hour surgical video. So the Mm -hmm. largest Annotated, which is just labeled, we're just labeling them, annotated surgical video sets are about 100 to to 150 data sets of annotated surgical video, meaning truly labeled. But nobody is labeling frame by frame. And here's why. We did a 10-week vessel annotation model over a year ago. And the first model, it took about uh, 10 minutes to annotate one frame. If you annotate one single frame times 216,000, it would have taken us four years to truly label or annotate mm-hmm. a one hour surgical video. Over 10 week time and training the models, we got that down to three minutes of frame, still not scalable. Today it's three milliseconds of frame through our annotation and through our proprietary wow. autonomous annotation model. We can annotate frame by frame a one hour surgical video in 10.8 minutes. So what we can hopefully do is deliver real accurate information in the operating room. So
0: how is that information getting being used by the surgeon? Are they looking through goggles? Do they have another screen in front of them? What is, what is the interface?
6: The interface is right on the screen that they're using. I mean, the monitor that they're watching, because our active site image module, it fits right between the existing scope and a camera, whether it's robotics, whether it's laparoscopic or what have you. And those physicians are watching a monitor. We have a, light, a, a a small light engine for our software and our, our, our imaging that goes on the tower as well. But when you're using a, a Carl Stort system or a uh, CMR system in robotics, um, we're not interfering with when you're using their system, use their system. When you press the button on our active site image module to see perfusion data or overlay or to start getting insights, Then our system takes over, but it doesn't interfere with their system, but you're watching it on the same exact screen. So all of a sudden on the screen, um, you're going to know those key landmines and landmarks. Up ahead, like I said, that is a vein, that's an artery. And a lot of that can be told by blood flow. We're able to tell a, a physician on the screen, there's something called the critical view of safety. And it's just identifying key landmines and landmarks that you want to stay away from Common bile duct injuries cost the U S healthcare system over a billion dollars every year. Wow. It's, it's co- and that's done during a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, the most common laparoscopic procedure, but they're very, they're not that common. It's still under 1% are causing, have common bile duct injuries yet. It's over a billion dollars. It's preventable. If you can see the critical view of safety and that's some of the AI and some of the data that we're going to be providing our physicians right on the screen we're telling them you that's the critical view of safety that's your cystic artery there's your cystic duct it's clearly marked so you know to stay away from it
0: so to, to follow the ways analogy the you're you're giving the little kind of up ahead there's yeah. a car on the side of the road there's a pothole over here exactly. there's a
6: th- exactly and the story that i would say to that sets this up is if you think about the autonomous car world um Not everyone's ready for an autonomous car today, but cars have been around since what, 1912 or whenever they were, Mm -hmm. you know, they were invented. But in your car and in my car uh, for the last 15 years, we've had a a rear view camera and that just provides data to the driver to help make decisions. We've had in our side view mirrors now, there's little orange lights or red lights to show if someone's in your blind spot. If you switch lanes by mistake and you're not planning to, your seat or your steering wheel may vibrate. You don't need an autonomous car for that. That's just more data for the driver. Mm -hmm. And that's why before we go completely to autonomous robotics, we're trying to just give more data to the surgeon in a traditional laparoscopic procedure. The more information you have, everybody starts getting on an equal playing field and then we're truly democratizing surgery because at the end of the day, there's a shortage of surgeons in the world. There's about 140 million surgical procedures that could be done that don't have surgeons um, ready to do them. So we want to make sure that, anyone doing surgery, that's obviously a trained physician, has as much data as they can. Mm-hmm. Why shouldn't they have the experts standing over their shoulder live in a case? Um, on all, And it's crowdsourced data from all of these experts.
0: But I heard the record screech in my head at autonomous surgery. So what, is that the end game here? I mean, are we talking about The the robotic surgeon we'll see you now sort of of scenario?
6: Well, I I don't think the surgeon, our intention of the autonomous robot, when we programmed it to do autonomous functions, it was to give a robot the opportunity to have certain decision-making capabilities to truly complement the surgeon. Surgeons should always be in the loop. Mm -hmm. This is not to replace a surgeon. I mean, there's certain areas of a surgery and all the advantages of robotics. We know that robots can reach things that surgeons' arms can't. They can get you places that a surgeon's arms can't. But at no time today does a robot make a decision without the surgeon guiding it because the robot can't see something that the surgeon can't. And what ActiveSight is doing is we're allowing a system to identify and see things that are invisible to a human today. So once a robot can start seeing things that that humans can't, then the opportunity to take full advantage of all these robotic capabilities is going to go even farther and the ai and the software robotics has been a big hardware play for years and devices and and understandably so but it's moving more into the software and the true visualization mm-hmm. i mean you know we want to make sure that a surgeon and a robot can see things and just like a scope we want to make sure they can it can see something that's not visible today. So then you can really take advantage of surgical skills.
0: That's, a, that's very cool. Final final question. You were talking about working across technologies, working with different companies, products. What kind of relationship do you need with those companies to have your guidance system offered on their products? Uh, is this something that you need to go company by company? Or is it something that can be layered on at the hospital, at the surgery room, without Permission from the manufacturer of the other system.
6: So um, I think it's it's a very fair question. So. The technology of Active Sight, the first product that's already submitted to the FDA, the image module that attaches to between a scope and a camera, not dependent on us working with another scope manufacturer. That's working with the hospitals and that's uh, based on technology. What we submitted to the FDA, we had approved certain things and non-inferiority We're class two and our FDA submission is to fit seamlessly between the scope and the camera system. And that will be our FDA clearance. Now, with that said, we've built a model that we can go out and go to hospitals and sell this technology and bring this technology to ORs around the world on our own. And we have that plan. But we'll be better and stronger if we partner. And what I mean by that is um, every scope company, and again, I was the president of one of them. Um, I was a president of one of the orthopedic ones. It just worked out that way. Mm-hmm. Um, every scope company knows us and um, knows the technology that we're working with. My belief is to have a tremendous relationship with all of them. And that's our goal. And I believe that's what we're doing. Similarly with robots. With the scope, I can take a device and stick it right between a, a scope and a camera right now. If we start getting into certain code development opportunities with robotics, that would be working with manufacturers on code development Can we take a device and stick it on Yes, but do we is it the best way to do it with robotics? Probably not, uh-huh. and the opportunity right now is um, we have uh, partnership agreements, we have discussion agreements and projects that are going on with multiple companies across the industry because um, we want to make every system better. We, we believe that active at the active inside model, if you will, like I said, every scope and robot is a carrier. Um, because we believe that we can make each of them better and let them focus on the things that make them great already. And they don't need to focus on these things. We're going to help deliver that uh, to their systems and to the doctors, ultimately reducing complications in those preventable medical errors.
0: Are they working, are these companies working on their own similar platforms or, or similar systems internally that you're sort of competing against? Or do you feel like you have some open field here?
6: Well, the nice thing is, and, and again, it, we're active surgical, they're big monster companies. And, and uh, so to, to, to understand the landscape, and again, being on that side of the business for so long, I, I, think I have a pretty good understanding. Uh, there's a lot of companies working on the science, whether it's multimodal technology and how do I see blood flow without any dyes and how can I identify critical structures? We, that's all been out there for a long time. What we were able to do is come with a delivery system and a mechanism that actually puts us in the middle of a procedure. In any system so any hospital seamlessly doesn't have to buy anything new they basically take this device and they attach it to their existing systems that they already have Mm -hmm. so and that is patented so our, our ip around not only the device but around the science of what's in this device has been a benefit to us so the thought process every of course companies can figure things out and work on i'll never say a company's not i i think there's always competition but at the end of the day Um, it's easier for a large company to look at a a company that specializes in something um, and look at them as let them be my R and D arm, if you will, and let them continue to work on that. And, and we can partner and collaborate and and we'll see what happens over the long run. But um, so to ever say that someone is not doing it, no one else has a device that goes intraoperative on existing scopes yet. And now that's been patented. So that is our landscape. And and we created that.
0: I just want to clarify, maybe I'm missing it. And I probably will hear it when I listen to the recording, but, can, can the hospitals use your system if you don't have that previous relationship with the company? You, you mentioned that they could go right now, plug yeah. in your system, and, and it would work.
6: Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And and part of our FDA clearance is identifying what systems, what scopes, where this works, what procedures, how it works. So, yes, we can take um, – uh, we know all the scope companies. and then, And the reason I say that is most scopes and cameras are interchangeable to a point. Mm-hmm. You know, I worked for a scope manufacturer. You could fit someone else's, I've seen it. Some hospitals grab one, one company's camera, someone else's scope, and they attach them together. Exactly. There's a couple of attachments, a C-mount or a universal. It's a it's a twist or a snap. <laughs> I mean, it's not. And, and then in the, the science is in the magic of what's in your processor and all of that. But they're interchangeable already. Now, each company has tremendous, tremendous advantages that they believe in and that, Physicians believe in, so they're very loyal to their, to their device manufacturer. This is not taking away. This is just adding to that. The, I guess the best way, Tom, is um, you know, there's, there's 2D, there's HD, there's 3, 3D, there's 4K. Those are all enhancements to what you can already see. So imagine you're watching television, and those just make the picture that much clearer. Mm-hmm. They bring things to light. Active sight is something that you can't see that now you can see. And that's something, so it's not enhancing what you can see. So we want to take the best of all of those scopes and robots and all those companies, and we want to enhance what you can see and and offer them more opportunities to do more things. We need them. We believe in every one of those companies. I don't have a favorite. Um, I root for them all. I root for every single robotic company to be great. And they all have advantages. And the fact is, we believe we can sit right on top of each one of them and work with them to bring the best for the doctors. That's fantastic. But we don't... And we can go into a hospital today and it's the hospital's decision whether they use active site uh, versus the manufacturer of a scope.
0: And your, and your value add for that's, that's great. Your, your value add for the hospital is, well, you'll have fewer mistakes, less costs, and that's why we're worth the, the money.
6: Well, the, the goal is readmission rates are a major issue in hospitals. Yep. Anastomotic leaks, key critical structure damage, those are things t- with today's technology can't always be identified. There's All the data is out there. And there's no reason you should leave in ever close up a patient without pressing a button and making sure there's adequate uh, blood flow. There's no anastomotic leak, or you've identified the key critical structures every time. And that's really the goal. That's
0: awesome. It's blowing my mind a little bit. Thanks, Todd. This has been a great conversation.
6: Um, I appreciate it. Thanks. I look forward to further discussions and uh, best of luck to you. You
0: too. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Todd Usen, and Active Surgical. If you want to see more, you can join us on Device Talks Tuesdays. Todd will be a panelist this coming Tuesday on our discussion about AI and IP protection. Go to devicetalks.com to register. We have fun at MassDevice trying to remember the origins of the surgical robotic name. So I thought I'd make a little Jeopardy game out of it. Chris and Sean are great sports, and uh, it's time to have a little fun. And sean what uh what pages are you uh leading the charge on here at uh, wtwh so I'll, i still contribute to
2: every everything here and there but uh mostly mass device and then working a lot on drug delivery business and uh trying to get that one
0: rolling people have no idea how many sites we have here covering the the life sciences and medtech industry so here he's doing good work is he doing good work chris newmark and he's just he's just rocking all right, excellent. Well hopefully you can win a little pretend money to have a a good weekend here on Surgical Robot Named Jeopardy. So yep. Chris Newmarker, you won the coin Wait a toss. second,
1: this is pretend money? We're not you're not giving us a prize. We just
0: No, it's real. I'll definitely cut you a check for sure. <laughs> My people will call your people. <laughs> Pick your category, Chris <laughs> Newmarker. Actually, the category is the same: surgical robot names. You can pick uh, number. You can pick the dollar value: five hundred to one hundred.
1: Oh, you know, I'll start modestly. I will do surgical robotic names for two hundred.
0: So, Martin Scorsese directed a movie with this name, but the story had nothing to do with a kind-hearted ex-con who can't escape his past. What is the the surgical robot system's name, and who makes it, Chris Newmarker? Oh
1: man, was this? Uh... Wow, is there like a is there like a Scorpio ro- robot? Serpico? Oh man, yeah, I do. this is like 1970s movies. Sean Hooley, do you have a guess?
2: Is it Hugo?
0: Hugo! <laughs> 200 for Sean Hooley. All right, Sean, you control the board. What what uh, dollar value would you like? I, I might just quit now. <laughs> <laughs> that happened on, did um... you see on Jeopardy last night for Final Jeopardy? They, no. There were two contestants with $14,200 and one with $2,000 and Final Jeopardy. Uh, she, they all correct. They all answered it incorrectly, but she bet zero. The other two bet all of their money. So she won. Oh my gosh. Yeah.
1: You know, it threw me for a loop because I forgot that, that Scorsese did, did Hugo. I forgot that he did a kid's
0: I had kids no kids idea movie. he did Hugo. So he's even you're better than I am for even forgetting it, for having the fact in the first place. Sean Huli, what's your dollar number, man? You can't quit. You're in this. Um, you know, let's, let's go for 300. This robot name sometimes means eight, but musically it calls for one to elevate.
2: Oh, thankfully I know this one. What is Otava made by Johnson and Johnson or just, just released or, uh, announced anyway.
0: Very good. All right. Pick your next dollar category. Let's keep climbing the ladder. 400. A surgical robot by any other name would smell as sweet. Also the first name of a 20th century civil rights hero. Sean, I know you weren't born in the 20th century. but Oh, maybe you were. I don't know. But uh, do you know the name of this robot and who makes it? Oh, boy. Um, Drawing a blank. I'll let Chris go if he's got it. I got it. It's the Rosa
2: by Zimmer Biomed. Uh.
0: All right. Yeah, so, Rosa Parks, yeah. So Sean has 500, Chris comes back with 400, Chris. Newmarker, you control the board.
1: All right. Well, you know, I think I'll um, head down to 100. I'll do 100.
0: All right. This robot didn't paint the Sistine Chapel either, but its namesake did capture a famous likeness of Lisa Gherardini of Florence, Italy. Da Vinci robot by intuitive, yep. Oh, this is tied up. This is intense. 500 wow. to 500. Chris Newmark, you're going to go for number 500 for yeah, the let's win. Let's do it. All right. You might not want to meet up with this robot at the beach, but it made a minimally access keyhole orthopedics possible.
1: Hmm. Let me think. Um, well, I know the I know the Mako is the most po- from Stryker is the is the most popular robot. All right, I'll just say Mako, the Mako robot from Stryker. Yes. All right. I actually had I had that if you would pass it off to me. I swear I was almost like this is too easy. The Mako really that's that's. What...
0: And I guess i had forgotten that Mako stood for minimally access kilo orthopedics. I'd forgotten, or I never knew it. I thought it was just a Florida fishing reference. So so Chris Newmark right. like with the Woo! win, a thousand sort of real dollars for you, sir. Yay. coming your way in your mass <laughs> device check. Just check that mass device check. I got an goes. envelope with some Monopoly money probably, right? <laughs> now it's time for our closing keynote conversation. I had the chance to speak with Maurice Ferre. Maurice, of course, is the founder of Mako Surgical, was involved in the decision to sell that to Stryker. We'll talk about that and many other things, including Memic, the company where he is now chair. But first... We're going to hear from our friends at Finnegan. Partner Apita Pachada is going to talk to us about some overlooked patent protection techniques. Let's listen.
7: Medical device companies have traditionally focused on obtaining utility patents, which protect the way a device is used and works. Design patents, which protect the way an article looks, is often overlooked. But design patents can really help to strengthen your patent portfolio and give you a competitive edge, particularly against similar looking or knockoff competitor products. In addition to protecting the non-functional ornamental features of your medical device, a design patent can protect the look of graphical user interface or the design of replacement parts. So don't forget to add design patents into your toolkit for protecting your invention. Within the realm of utility patents, most medical device companies tend to put an emphasis on device claims that cover the physical elements or parts that form the invented medical device. But method claims which cover the process of performing a procedure using the medical device can also help to further protect your innovation. In fact, method claims can potentially provide a broader protection than device claims because they do not require a detailed structural recitation which tends to narrow the scope of the claim. But method claims in the medical device field generally get a bad rep because nobody wants to sue the hospital or the physician who directly infringes the method claim by performing the claimed procedure. But remember that a competitor's device can indirectly infringe your method claims by inducing or contributing to the direct infringement of your method claim by the physician or clinician performing the procedure. So when it comes to enforcing your patent against a competitor's device, a broad, well-drafted method claim can really come in handy.
0: And if you want to learn more about our friends at Finnegan, go to finnegan.com. Well, Maurice Perret, welcome to the podcast.
8: Thank you, Tom. Uh, pleasure to, to uh, be on your device talks.
0: <laughs> Great to have you. We, you wouldn't remember this, but we spoke many years ago at uh, one of the AOSs. I think it was just before the Striker deal. So you must have been working on it while I was interviewing you for a magazine I was writing for. And uh, of course, you, you were wise to keep it to yourself. But uh, I remember at the time that I think it was a Canaccord orthopedics meeting. They had sort of a debate, robotics versus customized implants and sort of which would be the future. And it's just remarkable to think of that time that there was... It was still a question very much what you, what you were working on and what and what Mako was working on we had intuitive but but Mako was kind of out there trying to get into the orthopedics field which was so dominant dominated by big players i want to get into your history but but the question that's always sort of amazes me is like what was the moment where you saw the technology for what it was and and realized i need to build a company around this and and how do you get if there was any sort of doubt how did you do sort of work through it or around it
8: you know, it was two things that came came really came together very very closely. One was when I saw um, haptics
4: mm-hmm.
8: as as a ro- a light arm robot that was as light as a feather and can differentiate what the feeling is of a surgeon when he touches bone or whether he touches soft tissue. Mm-hmm. And that was like really unique. It's like, uh, wow, how can somebody build this massive 800-pound robot and then at the tip of it, it's like feather light. And and it has these these capabilities when you close your eyes of sensing different types of feelings. That was really important in terms of saying that when you go through keyhole procedures, and actually MAKO was minimally accessed keyhole orthopedics because that's. Oh, that concept. I you know,
0: thought it was a Florida thing. Yeah, I thought no, you just liked no. fishing.
8: <laughs> no, no. but So that concept of being able to do implants through small incisions was something that was very striking. And the fact that what you'd lose when you do small incisions is that, that sensation of touch. The surgeon loses that tactile capabilities. And very different from any other type of robot, this concept of bringing haptics was really Kind of kind of like a seminal moment and saying wow this is really has some capabilities
0: that that's the that's the tech and that's really that's a great yeah. great story but what about I mean, how did you know you didn't have a a hammer that was in church of a nail because there was oh, so much you the second something. part okay go ahead There were okay, two there, <laughs>
8: there were parts to it there were two revelations the second one was meeting john rapisi and john rapisi was an orthopedic surgeon a dentist turned orthopedic surgeon up in, up in, um, in, in uh, Syracuse, brilliant, brilliant guy. And what he was doing was magic. He was, he was using a drill to cut bone. And and what was amazing was his frustration of when biomed was out there kind of like, Hey, this is a really cool idea. You know, we can do the Junis and, you know, there's a real need for these, but they weren't reproducible. At all, zero. So, so, when we looked at early stage disease and we looked at unique compartmental disease and it was a large part of the market and it wasn't well penetrated, you know, it, we realized very quickly that you put a combination of this implant, unique compartmental through in small incision with this haptic robot using navigation and we built this in a streamlined fashion that we were gonna get a lot of attention. And, that, and then the idea was how to position this you know i i was i was you know makoplasty i wanted to get a word out there that people would say just like kyphoplasty and uh-huh. and so makoplasty became kind of the the procedure name and and i went out to the community and and just started started just driving it and saying hey these you know and it was, a lot of it was well you know it's like well we don't do any compartmentals we do total knees and that really built the market for us that's when we kind of had the aha moment let's stay focused on that um, and then, you know, eventually we knew that we were going to do a tricompartmental knee and we wanted to uh, build those out. So so we realized a very important thing for us that we realized, Tom, was is like we had an opportunity to go and say, hey, we're going to be the Switzerland of the world. We're going to let mm-hmm. anybody's implant go in there. But but I realized that if you do that, then you really lose a lot of value. And I said, I'm going to make my own implant. And that was like a bold statement for us to do. So we, we went off and, and, um, and at first started licensing and then eventually built, building uh, implants. And, and in fact, one of the guys that we worked with was Robert Cohen. He had a company called Pipe, Pipeline that now Robert is head of R&D for Stryker. But we had built an amazing implant, uh, which was that ended up being the total knee implant. Uh, and we worked with multiple partners. We worked with HSS and others to kind of help develop multiple implants. And a big, you know, a big part of our success was also to realize not only on the knee but also on the hip. And you know, Larry Dor uh, was a giant in our industry. Who, recently passed um, was, was really very inspirational. He called me up and, and really got me excited. I wasn't going to do a hip, but when Larry called me up, he was very influencing and I said, we're going to go ahead and, and do a hit.
0: Wow. So we've had Kevin Lobo from Striker on the podcast and I've talked to him about this on a few occasions. Just the yeah. the, the time, people questioned what Striker was doing. Uh, I mean, you were out there, you were making progress, you are getting traction, but the acquisition caught many, including myself, by surprise. And I asked him how he sort of got comfortable with the gamble. And he said, look, this was a big deal, but it wasn't going to crush us if it didn't work. And I was seeing numbers that really made me excited about it. So it made sense. And it worked out, obviously. I've, I've often wondered from your perspective, did you have any doubt about selling or did you really kind of want to build a, a bigger company that 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 was much more than just, well, you're obviously moving into areas outside of the knee? but did you have any doubts about selling or does $1.5 billion kind of put those doubts away?
8: Uh, you know, I, I guess the way I would answer that is, you know, we, we didn't sell the company. The company was bought. Right. And there's a very different mindset in building companies. When we were out there strategizing, working with the team and and doing what we were doing, uh, it, it was all in. You know, it's like we're building a great company here. But, you know, the, there comes a moment where, where when Kevin flew down, I was actually with my son fishing, and it was an August day. And Kevin calls me up and says, "Hey, I I I'm, I want to talk to you. I I have a, I have a um I want I want to I want to partner with you." And I said, "Well, you know that's interesting." So you know what I found most amazing it was just Kevin. So I, I go over, and he goes, "Let's have let's have a dinner." And we we I, I took him over to Key Biscayne. We we went to um, the grand bay club and there was nobody there in the whole dining room and we had a beautiful view of the beach and you know we had a great conversation and um you know kevin was at the end kind of said you know i what what really this comes down to is i'd really like to to buy you and um and and i think that started the process um and I, i it came to a point where You know, I wanted to make sure, because I had lived this before when I sold my first company to GE, that it just was so poorly handled. And I wanted to make sure that I was leaving this in good hands and and I and I really felt like it, like this was going to be the best thing for the, for 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 patients and and to do this right and it and it became evident that you know we were kind of like an adolescent and we were growing up and 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 Stryker was the logical next step to take this to the next level and it was really the commitment the fact that we kept the team he kept the full team here he, he Kevin's doubled down built a massive facility here thousands of employees are down here in South Florida as a result of it. It's created a massive ecosystem of of opportunities and growth. And people within the organization have grown in and it's become a key part of the thesis. And, and I give Kevin a lot of uh, a lot of kudos, you know at the moment I know you know he said to me something really interesting because Maurice you know I I'll bet my job on this but I'm not going to bet the company so I'll go up, I'll go up to your price of 1.65 billion dollars <laughs> at the time which was 17 times uh, uh, earn, revenues where we were losing 30 40 million dollars a year and you know we we had a model we could have kept on going and you know it was a, yeah. it was a very contentious discussion at the board level and and uh, there were some that were looking at this and saying, we're, we're leaving a lot of money on the table and there were others who saying, wow, this is pretty remarkable. But I think all in all, um, if I look at the scope of it and, and everybody, you know, from the street level to the employees, to patients, I, I think it was the right thing to do. And, um, and, and, and look where we are today. Look at how robotics has become front stage, you know, in, in, in massive. I'm still shocked by all the analysts, you know, seven years out that, you know, the first part of the story is utilization on Mako systems pretty amazing
0: it is no it really is how quickly it's developed uh and i want to kind of get a a, a, your perspective on the robotics industry in a second but your your point about making about striker doubling down on south florida i mean your dad was was mayor of miami for 12 years 12 years and, and very well known do you still did you you must carry that sort of love of the area and desire to do well for the area as well
8: you know it's funny, I, we just had the uh, Mayor Francis Suarez here in our office, and um, there's so much going on right now in South Florida, in Miami in particular, about a, um, a tweet that he said, how, how can I help? And basically, there's a convergence of, of San Francisco tech people and New York hedge funds coming all to Miami, mm-hmm. right? In this COVID environment, and they're realizing that you know, hey, I can I can have a good quality of life and have a great job, and you know, there's no taxes here as a state level, and it's a great place to live. And I think one of the interesting things is is building, you know, high-paying jobs in the tech field. And I'm really proud that Mako was is is a, the antithesis of Mako has resulted in over five thousand jobs. And about four or five billion dollars of of, of uh, economy coming into the system, where you have a lot of engineers from our current schools, where we were recruiting at, at Mako enormously, but we're seeing also, um, you know, people coming back. Mm-hmm. So there's a workforce that's coming back, and I think, you know, in the South Florida environment, that that plays really well. And MAKO is a great, great story of a success story of, of how, how how they've doubled down and, and it's become significant. So it's, it triangulates on a personal side. I'm very proud of it because I know that's something that my father worked really hard on in making Miami a great a great city.
0: And that's great. And I, and I won't belabor this anymore, but I also had read that you had at least one term sheet that wanted you to move the company to the Bay Area at the time when you were private. So...
8: I did. Bob, well, you've done your homework. You've done your homework, <laughs> And I also we had Canada. Canada wanted us to move the company. They were going to they were going to pay me like fifty million dollars to move the
0: company. Oh, really? Yeah. It's a big change from Miami to Canada.
8: Yeah, we're,
0: we're, <laughs> we're not going to do that. Do that. Uh, so I would love your perspective then on sort of where we are, and we can start talking about where Memex sort of fits into this. Mm-hmm. But are we at a point where there's like a next generation of Surgical robotics, I mean, now it seems like we've moved even beyond using the term surgical robotics. Now everyone's talking about digital surgery because there's more to it than just robotic technology to it. But how how do you see it? Do you still see this as surgical robotics or do you see this now as being digital surgery that is part of something much larger?
8: You know, I I totally buy into digital surgery. I I think the world of how how we're going to see surgery um, being performed or, or just certain procedures being performed are, are, are changing dramatically on a lot of different fronts. It's not just mechanical. It's, it's really become chemical. It's become delivery of systems. And, you know, I'm, I'm honored now, you know, after, after a six month hiatus, I jumped back into the bandwagon and, and running insight tech, which is an amazing <laughs> a company that's using mr guided focus ultrasound it's 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 an infinite degree of freedom of energy sources going inside the body which makes it incisionless and it's performing all these different types of procedures and we've identified about sixty-seven different types of indications. But what's really neat, and what I'm seeing what's happening, is through uh, digitization, through through energy sources, through infinite degree of freedoms, um, you can you can manipulate at the cellular level uh, certain activities and stimulate certain activities. And as we get smarter and smarter about this, I think you're going to start seeing this this type of Star trekking and type of uh, procedures <laughs> being done. Uh, and I think this is just the forefront of it. So I got really excited about seeing this whole new platform, which we call the fourth wave, uh-huh. uh, going after robotics. You know, where you have early you know, open decisions, minimally invasive robotics, and now I think with using focus ultrasound and energy levels intraoperatively where you're inside the MR, you're seeing real time. So, I mean, that's like one level of like, you know, and that's good. I think over the next 10, 20 years, you're going to see a lot of stuff going on in that in that field and the dynamics of it, the number of citations that are being out there, the big, big, there was a big piece on the center of nature that was all about focus ultrasound and drug deliveries and, and opening up the blood brain barrier for a short period of time so you can deliver cells and gene therapy. The that's like one level that becomes really digital, which goes way beyond just a, a mechanical robot. But in just the, the field of, the, of where we are, I think, is I think we're, we're getting smarter. I think we're starting to understand uh, additional needs in the uh-huh. market, right? So, for example, uh, Memic is a, is a great example of, I think, the next generation robots that are coming in that are, that are absolutely uh, looking at footprint Looking at cost and looking at new efficiencies um, that are enabling them to work in the ambulatory surgery center. Center, you know, it's like we need to we need to lower the cost of healthcare. Healthcare is out of control. So, does it make sense to have a multi-million-dollar robot doing all these type of procedures? Does, maybe it might make sense to have a lower cost solution that's not working in the hospital, but. But affordable working in ambulatory surgery centers that are more outpatient type procedures that can take advantage of robotics. And and I think that the the form factor. Of of these types of new generation robots, um, and specifically, mimic. I think because I don't think we need another Me Too. I don't think we need another um, Da Vinci, right? I think uh-huh. when I look at all the other technologies that are out there that are being developed, I I, I, I don't I don't think that that's going to be in the playing field. Intuitive is going to eat them for lunch. I mean, they have the market share, the lion's share. For whatever reason, they have created this 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 huge huge moat. And, and no one's come close. And people have tried and hasn't succeeded. So I think you have to do a paradigm shift. I think you have to build a new model that shows how how these robots are going to be delivered. And I think there's going to be a lot of new advancements going on on the imaging side, uh-huh. of, on the capabilities of, of you know, I've mentioned haptics. I think haptics is going to come into the, uh, into the equation. And there's billions and billions of dollars of people working in this, some, some failing, you know, if I look at specifically some of the initiatives that have taken place from Google, for example, uh-huh. verb, I mean, that was a failure. You know, they, they, you know, these are people that think they know this field and, and it just doesn't work that way. I think you really need people who really understand what the needs are from the, from the physician's perspective. And that's what memic's done. Memic is, and I, what I really like about it is that they're focused just like we were at MAKO focused on the unicondular knee.
0: Mm-hmm. And looking
8: at that as a market, I see memic doing the same thing. Memic is is using its platform to go after GYN on a transvaginal approach, which is very, very unique. The market is asking for that it's just been very difficult to to perform that type of procedure. And the fact that these instruments do do a retroflex, and they have the type of tension and the torque that 's necessary to do these type of procedures. And it brings a, a a very common sense approach is really critical.
0: So memic got FDA De Novo marketing authorization for its uh, its hominis system.
8: Yeah, big big move by the FDA. This is the first one. This is the first one from the FDA on this new category.
0: The new category being the 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 transvaginal or or the type of technology that
8: I think the FDA has sent a message to the industry at large that 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 five ten ks are off the table now, mm-hmm. and now you have to go de novo for for Tom for the reason that we we've, we've all realized that there's a lot more to this technology. There's there's the information, how the information is being transferred, the the I the uh, the AI of it. And and I think that the and the FDA is, has, has, you know, rightfully so kind of like like really carefully been methodical about about how 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 the new range of, of robots need to be regulated. And it's you know, this was a this was a major, massive two, three year undertaking. And I think that the the FDA is not going to hold everybody to this new standard. And they were very careful. Um, and they were they were they were very thoughtful in the process of how this was a lot of debate of whether these should all be PMAs, um, mm-hmm. and and I think they I think they they managed it well and and MIMIC's the first one to come out, so um, it'll be interesting.
0: Well, let's first t- just a little more detail on what Memic I- is able to do. Is it is it is it making a, a procedure creating the opportunity to do a new procedure this way, or is it as Mako did? Uh, allowing to surgeons to do procedures they already do, uh, in a more efficient technical way.
8: Well, I look, I, I think the procedures, the first targets are hysterectomies. Yeah. So these are, these are procedures that are, that are normally done. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, you want to give, you want to give the, what's, what's, what's really, I think really unique about this is you want to be able, um, they're, they're in the literature, um, the doing trans transvaginal approaches has been the way the 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 choice of that that a lot of surgeons have wanted to do, but it's been very challenging to do with instrumentation, just similar like the Rupesi story, very very challenging. You know, and why transvaginal? Well, you know, some part of it is you know women women don't want to have incisions. are you know, sure. certain sets of that, right? And then and, and if you can do this. In in that type of approach, there's a real appeal from the from the patient's perspective, but also um, you know you you want to you want to have good results, and that's the key. Is that I think mamic has been able to demonstrate that going using creating this type of, of robotic system that has this this capability of of the instruments coming in and retrograding or or kind of converting and doing like a one eighty. And then you have a, a an image, a lot, uh, an image that's coming in from the top, and the 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 system, in, in terms of where where the where, where the manipulators that the surgeons are holding on to and they're 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 acting, they're la- they're working, they're mimicking the body, the body parts, they're mimicking your your motion of your of your shoulders, of your elbows, of your of your wrists. In a very, in a very, I should say, intuitive way, uh, but not intuitive.
0: But. <laughs> not trademarking, <laughs> lowercase i. Yes. Yeah. Lowercase <laughs> i. I think that's the way you look at it,
8: and 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 uh, and I think that's when you put your hands on the system, it's like, oh my gosh. Never seen anything like this.
0: It's interesting. You were earlier hearing you talk about cost because Mako was uh, one of the criticisms was that it added to the cost. That it wasn't a necessary piece of equipment. That hospitals were buying it for marketing purposes. Uh, I wonder how that sat with you, uh, and and I wonder also how do how do you make the argument for value with with this next generation of robotic technology?
8: Well, I'll tell you one thing that I really think is is critical, and you know, it's a You know i've seen the process i work in the prostate area as well so i know and you know in in, we've seen in the advancements of both the da vinci and the mako system that there wasn't hard data and it was i would say yes it was very market-driven but i think those times are changing i think now more and more um there's more rigor and need for for data and evidence that you're really doing something and and part of, our, part of the challenge is when you look, when you look at like unique compartmental needs, what we don't measure is the fact that we have a bunch of patients that are out there that don't have a full-blown total need, right? And, and it's a quality of life issue, um, and it's also a cost issue, but those aren't being measured. And, and, um, and I think over time, I knew that in Mako's case, that that would eventually come up and it Uh will. And there's data that's starting to support the cost element of this stuff. Um, But remember some of these costs, you know, it's like, well, does this require if you're doing the partial is, you know, you got to buy this robot and that's the way to do it. You know, is that is, are you better off than, 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 uh, you know, seeing some of the infection rates and the complications that occur with with you know total knee, you know those were those type of discussions that were taking place i I think that in the in the across general surgery i mean it's clear that the, there was there's a lot of effort on the marketing side I, I i think that we're moving more and more towards these economic studies and you know one of the things for example and here that i'm doing at insight tech is level one studies, you know, mm-hmm. where I think you you've got to do randomized control trials. You've got to get the data. And it's a big investment. It's a huge investment. It takes five to six years to really collect the data. You have to power it up properly. And um, and, and I think you're going to see more and more of that coming across the board. Uh, because that, that's how you that's how you really create, you really get the appreciation for value. I, I think the marketing piece and the sizzle of that is 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 going to be less and less effective as a device company. And you really are going to have to go back to the hard work of collecting real hard data.
0: I'd love to know how you sort of see this playing out. I mean, we, we have Johnson & Johnson has uh, Atova, and and Medtronic has Hugo. And of course, we talked about intuitive already. Everyone's getting their robotic system. There's uh, dozens of Startups, smaller companies with robotic systems. Uh, I think you mentioned at the top that you didn't want to do me too, uh, but we are certainly getting in a space where it's getting very crowded for surgical robotics. How do you how do you sort of see this all play out?
8: Well, you know, Tom, we're, we're going to see, but I, I, look, I'll go back to the thesis that you have something simple and, and you have something reliable, and and I, and I, and I I think with a low footprint, um, and I think it's I think it's a business. Um, buster. I think, I think it busts the business model of, you know, high cost capital equipment, huge amount of effort is is being put into there. You know, I, I think this is, this is, this theme is overplayed, but it's, it's, it's going to be the democratization of, of robotics. I, I look, I I kind of say MIMIC's the closest thing to a disposable robot. And, and I think, I think that is, if, if I were, if I were J&J and I were, um, Um, Medtronic, who, by the way, haven't put their robots out there because they're still out there, right? Um, Look at the costs that they're going to have to incur Mm -hmm. and how it's going to show up on their financials just to get up to a level. I mean, it's going to be massive for them to be effective, right? Mm -hmm. There's massive costs. The cost of these equipment, the, the setup, the cost of the infrastructure. But what Memic provides is a very, very elegant, what will be kind of a low cost solution, which is addressing the needs of what the market's asking for. When I talk to the IDNs of the world, the the big hospital systems, you know, they don't want to deal more with like another big robot sitting in the hallways. They're running out of space. And the costs associated, the service contracts, this and that, the disposable costs, all these things, these things are real. And I think without, you know, we, we've got to get our costs down. And I think MEMIC really is addressing that part of the market. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to make their job a lot
0: more difficult. Well, great thoughts. Uh, it's a great to reconnect with you. I enjoyed talking to you back at AOS back when
8: Bye-bye. thanks for, thanks for reminiscing i also i just want to i just once again i just want to put a big plug out there for all all those folks out there that remember larry Dor. larry Dor was a giant in this industry um you know our thoughts and prayers are with him and his family and he, he was very monumental in the orthopedic space and a true believer a true beauty in robotics which at the time a lot of people didn't believe in it and, and larry was out there front and center God bless Larry.
0: That's, thank you for, uh, for, for making sure we all know that. So appreciate the timers. All right, great. Well, now is the time we beg for connection on social media. Chris Newmarker, you have been on fire this week on LinkedIn with your, uh, Jeff Martha post. It was, uh, insane. The, my, my, my notifications on LinkedIn app were off the, off the chain, as they, as they say, it was uh, off but, the chain. So, uh, <laughs> You folks who aren't connected to Chris Newmarker are missing quite the show. How can they find you, Chris Newmarker?
1: I'm always open to connections, always uh, interested in hearing about story pitches. Uh, you can connect with me on LinkedIn at Chris Newmarker, just like a, a Newmarker. And I'm also on Twitter at Newmarker.
0: <laughs> Sean Hooley, where can we find you on the social media? You can
2: find me on Twitter at Sean Hooley, WTWH, and that's S E A N. It is March after all, almost St. Patrick's Day. It's the Irish spelling. And then we got WH. O O L E Y and the same spelling uh, on LinkedIn. Feel free to connect.
0: Excellent. And Chris Neumarger, I think you, you missed a, a tag, didn't you? Aren't you a member of a, of a new social media? app application yeah, as they so, say
1: somebody um somebody who's probably you invited me to join clubhouse so i am on clubhouse and uh you know tentatively like, kind of checking it out but um, I mean, it definitely seems to be a lot of discussions going on there i saw that you participated in one on clubhouse today
0: i did i did i was on uh, on a, a discussion called uh, uh with, with with giovanni lorcella of uh, of an aaron green of the mullings group and we talked about fundraising which was yeah. kind of fun it was good to it's good to be uh Kind of a panel slash panelist, kind of moderator sort of thing. So it was, it was neat, and we did do our. I did my first clubhouse room on Monday. It was at five thirty p.m. Eastern. I'm going to do it again. So this Monday at five thirty p.m., we'll have. For any West Wing fans out there, you'll appreciate the name. Device walk and talks where nice. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll take a walk with my phone and my and my my beats. Bluetooth and uh, we can talk about the podcast. So we can talk about the guests that were on or the themes, but of course we can talk anything the med tech. So you folks can, uh, can find it on clubhouse 5 30 PM. Eastern Chris Newmarkers normally picking up little new at that time, but uh, we'll certainly try to have other folks on the program as well. And we'll definitely be doing some more as, as well. Cause I'm annoying about this and I'm going to make Chris and Sean do that as well as this podcast. So you can also find me on LinkedIn. My name is Tom Salemi, S A L E M I. And I am on Twitter at MedTechTom. All right, folks. Well, that is a wrap. Once again, thank you for joining us on this really lengthy podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share it with your friends if you did or even if you didn't. Uh, Please do, if you'd care to, give us a ranking. But we know no one ever does that. But it's always, again, nice to get an attaboy from time to time. And uh, finally, tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talk Weekly Podcast waiting for you.
2: See you soon.